Hi, everyone. Before we start the show, don't forget, tomorrow night, Thursday, September 13th, right here in Brooklyn, New York, we're having our first ever Family Ghosts live show featuring our story editor, Michaela Bly, NPR's Ophira Eisenberg, and lots of other great storytellers and musicians, plus a special sneak peek at our season two stories from yours truly. Tickets are just $15 in advance with the promo code GHOSTS. Get them at our website, familyghosts.panoply.fm. Hope to see you there. Just a quick warning before we begin. This episode contains some explicit language. Greetings, Ghost Family. Welcome back to the Fam Go Show summer bonus episode series, of which there are only two more before the official launch of Family Ghosts Season 2 on October 10th. This feed is going to be much more active between now and the launch of the season, when we'll resume publishing new episodes every week. This week, of course, you'll hear the episode you're currently listening to. And in two weeks, we'll have one more bonus episode for you before our season two trailer drops on October 3rd. And then one week after that, on the 10th, it's go time. Ghost time? Go time. Go time for ghost time. Anyway, I wanted to say thank you so much to all of you who've been tuning in for these bonus features. I hope it's been interesting for you getting to meet the producers who work so tirelessly to make this show everything it is as well as, of course, the people who inspire them. I was thinking this past weekend about how valuable it's been for me to have the opportunity to learn about the things that inspire everyone on the team. The things I've heard the producers talk about with the artist we feature on this series don't come up around the office as much as they should, especially in the heat of production. Things like poetry and painting and cultural identity and fear of failure. Things that are informing every choice the team and I make in the creation of our stories but that we don't often stop to think about and acknowledge. A friend of mine likes to say that it's important to remember the tailwinds that propel you forward, because most of us are too busy complaining about the headwinds that blow against us. And I'd like to think this bonus episode series has largely been about having that conversation with ourselves, and by extension, all of you. But let me pump the brakes before we get too nostalgic about this series of shows, because there is one producer you have not met yet. This week, you'll meet producer Odelia Rubin, who sat down recently with musician Hubby Jenkins for a conversation about bluegrass, the cultural history of the banjo, and using music to transform people's understanding of history. Of course, this week also marks the final installment of our recurring bonus episode segment, Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. I know you'll all be so disappointed not to hear that sounder anymore, and at the risk of oversupposing how much you all love it, this week I'm going to tell you the story of how it came to be. I'm well aware this might be the worst idea I've ever had for the show. But first, a word about Odelia Rubin, who's been a part of Family Ghosts since the beginning. I probably don't have to tell you that I was terrified about releasing the pilot episode of Family Ghosts. I had no idea what my family would think about the version of the story I was releasing, and since my family was basically the only reliable audience for any show I'd previously hosted, shout out to the mercifully short-lived Dingmantics podcast, I also had no idea if this idea was going to work. Would anyone else care about other people's family legends? 
Would people trust me to tell their family stories? Would listeners assume the show was about real ghosts? I've been working on the pilot for a few months with Verilyn Williams, who you met in our episode with Tiari Jones, and we finally had a draft ready. It was time to get fresh ears on the piece. The first two people I turned to were Jason DeLeon, who you met in our Josh Ritter episode, and Odelia. I first heard Odelia's work as a producer and editor on The Grift, a panoply show from 2016 about con artists and their victims. you got to check out that show if you haven't already. Each episode profiles a different con artist, laying out the DNA of their deception in elegant detail and humanizing them without valorizing their behavior. I knew Odelia had helped shape every script, overseen the musical composition, and edited every episode with precision and atmospheric zeal. As I began my quest to create a show where each story would profile deceptions of a different type in a similar style, I felt like it was imperative to have ears like Odelia's in the room. Quite simply, it's one of the best decisions I've ever made. In addition to bringing the excellence of her editorial craft to our team, Odelia has also been a tireless voice for authenticity of perspective, meaning she's always on the lookout for moments when it seems like we're massaging the narrative of a story in a way that isn't truly reflective of the storyteller's feelings about it, even if rearranging things would be more expedient for the arc we're trying to create. I really appreciate Odelia's commitment to that, and I'm sure our collaborators do too. Odelia left Panoply recently to pursue an exciting new project, but her mark on our show is indelible. You'll be hearing from her more this fall when our second season begins. Also, Odelia is a fellow bluegrass enthusiast, so when she suggested interviewing Hubby Jenkins for this bonus episode, I was over the moon. Hubby performs with Rhiannon Giddens, Rowan Corbett, and Malcolm Parson in the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and also tours and performs as a solo artist. His album, Hubby Jenkins, came out in 2016. He stopped by our studio to play some banjo and talk with Odelia about the complicated experience of being a black artist who plays the banjo, and the roots of his commitment to blending history with music. A couple years ago, I went down to Reedsville, North Carolina, to interview some family members. So my, my grandmother died when my mom was a kid, and then my grandfather died when I was a kid. I never really got to know them that well. So I wanted to interview my great aunt, who is very old, and then I went to interview friends of my grandparents. And in between interviews, I would just sit and like play music, waiting for people to show up. And at some point, one of my grandfather's friends shows up, and he sees me playing banjo. He's like, oh, you play the banjo? That's pretty good. I'm like, why don't you go play, that, play me some of that piano over there? And there was always a piano in my great aunt's house that no one ever played, and I never knew why they had it. And I said, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't know how to play piano at all. And he's like, really? Like, everyone on your granddaddy's side played the piano. Like, you guys were the piano-playing family. I was like, really? Like, and so I, I got it on tape. Yeah, all of them play Alice and, and, and Bean and my mama and, 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 and June was phenomenal. Something I never knew. So, like, somewhere in my DNA, it didn't matter that I didn't hear it or get to it. Like, it was in me the whole time anyway. So I guess I wanted to start with asking you how you got into playing folk music. Yeah, sure. So... When I was a kid, I grew up playing saxophone. So I played saxophone, alto sax from f- age of five until high school. 
and then like rebelled against my folks and started playing cello and bass and classical music. Um, and then when I finished high school, I was like, I want to play music. I don't know what it's going to be, but I'm going to take a year off of uh, from college. Um, and in that year, I got really into country blues, like going backwards from like Jimi Hendrix and Bob Dylan into that. And so when I got into country blues, I had a few friends who were getting into old-time music and traditional blues music. And our main connection then was the New York folk scene. That's how we felt validated in playing all this southern music, right? Um, so we'd hang out in Washington Square Park. Yeah. One of my friends, Farrell Foster, Foster, started a show on McDougal Street, which is where a lot of the old folkies hung out, like John Baez, Karen Dalton, Bob Dylan. And so that was kind of like my first real connection to it. And it's really funny because, like, my family's from North Carolina. And as a kid, I would go down to North Carolina and be hot and resentful of the South and hate it. <laughs> um, and just sit in the living room and watch MTV all day and not go out. And so I never really encountered any Southern music or folk music while I was there, except for going to church, of course. My great aunt made me go to church. Um, but yeah, my first connection is New York and Washington Square Park. Tell me about busking, because I know you traveled a lot. And is it Was it during that time period, traveled a lot and did a lot of busking? Yeah, you know, there's a romantic view of old time that involves handkerchiefs and overalls and, um, I guess, plaid and <laughs> um, boots and hitchhiking. And I was kind of really inspired by, like, Woody Guthrie and that kind of stuff, so... For a period of time, I would just busk in the subway in Washington Square Park on Ludlow Street, on McDougal Street. I just busked everywhere. I paid my rent busking. Um, and then that slowly turned into a cycle of getting a job that I hated, saving a bunch of money, quitting, going traveling for a little bit, running out of money, coming back, <laughs> and busking, getting a crappy job. Um, but busking is really where like, I learned to practice. I learned to perform in a lot of ways. You know, like when you're playing a song and no one cares, like you can feel it very quickly. So learning how to shift gears. I got really into medleys, busking. Hmm. Um, and I also had terrible stage fright. So a lot of busking uh, helped with that. That makes sense because you're playing, playing to a group of like a bunch of strangers and people kind of cycle through. And So your music is roots music and you also like your family is from this area in the south that plays this music but you weren't connected to that. What did finding and playing folk music feel like to you? When I first started playing country blues, it was more of like a singer-songwriter kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And thinking of, you know, people like Robert Johnson or Skip James or whatever as artists. You know, a lot of times people think of blues as like What's the word I'm looking for? Not archaic, but like uh, just not arts. Like there's no craft to it. You know, just like, oh, they just, it's one for five. You know, like, but like they wrote these songs, composed these songs, if you will. And so hearing like someone like Skip James, it just felt powerful. It's like, oh, one person with a guitar can be more powerful than, I don't know, Led Zeppelin and all their stacks or whatever. And then at some point I was reading a book and I learned that the banjo was a black instrument, that the banjo was a slave instrument. And that the creation of American music like, first happened on plantations. Um, and that opened all that music up for me in a totally different way. Where, like, before, I'd, I didn't even think about trying to learn banjo. I was like, that's some weird white stuff. I don't know what's going on there. And just learning that fact made it super accessible. Um, and then I got my first banjo, and it opened up this whole world. I'm like, hell yeah. 
American music is black music. Like, I'm all about it. Like, I'm going to represent. Um, and I'm going to go to these spaces that feel like white spaces and, and proclaim it loudly. It made me learn more about my history um, and, like, our history in this country and how all of that is within the music, if that makes sense. Yeah. I like the idea that you hear American history through the music and in, in the idea of you going to spaces. I'm, I, I'm just imagining it must be a weird feeling playing music that you know is black music and you know the audience might not know that. Yeah, you know, like when I, one of, my, <laughs> one of the things that inspired me was playing guitar in Union Square. And I was just getting into Robert Johnson and like playing slide. And this black guy came up to me, and he's like, boy, I've never seen a black man play bluegrass before. And I was like, oh, I have so much, <laughs> so much to tell you. <laughs> like, this isn't bluegrass, and, like, this is our music, and, like, it belongs to us, and blah, blah, blah. And so when I first started starting to play festivals and starting to play more show shows instead of just coffee houses and corners and stuff, um, that became very important to, like, talk about that. And then when I joined Carolina Chocolate Drops, like, they were also on the same mission, and like playing at old time festivals and saying like, hey, the banjo is a black instrument. And people would be like, I had no idea. I've been playing the banjo for 50 years, had no idea. Or they would say, there's no way. My granddaddy played the banjo, like uh, it can't be. So yeah, it is a, it's like just that fact and like the visceral reaction people get from seeing black people play the banjo and play this music becomes historical and relevant in its own way. And you just have to, yeah, teach people that. Understanding the things that are happening today are rooted back then, you know? So if you play, like, a minstrel song, if you play, like, a blackface song that has racist lyrics about, you know, niggers have razors and all this other stuff, then you understand the mentality of police and people who support police and police brutality and why, like, these ideals, like, well, the creation of black people is being dangerous and super strong and fast and hypersexualized and all these other things are rooted in this time period and are integrated into our country and continue. Same with any blues song about prisons. Same with any blues songs about black love. Same, you know what I mean? Like, so on and so forth. So when you do shows, do you have a lot of like, do you tailor your explanation to the audience, and how does that change? Do I tailor my explanation? Within reason. Uh, probably not. <laughs> uh, you know, there are varying degrees of, of, of anger that I feel when I'm performing. You know, like during Ferguson and all that kind of stuff, there was a lot of anger in my explanations. And for a while, I was reading Choose Your Own Adventure books on stage, which I'm a huge fan of Choose Your Own Adventure books, and I would open up the show like, okay, here are misconceptions about black people created right after slavery. Here's a song about it. Um, okay, and then I would just start reading this book. You're a medieval knight. Like, do we go left or do we go right? People go, what? Hands for left? Hands for right? Okay, we're going to go right right after this song. Now, black people were oppressed through the prison system as well <laughs> and just bouncing back and forth, and that, that was a way of disarming people where A, they're involved, so they're just in it, and then B, they're having fun and taking in kind of this intense look at racial history without putting up any barriers. And I think that it enhances the music to think about it that way. Yeah. Some people can get offended by it, but some people are just like, whoa, I didn't know that. And every time I hear Run, Johnny, Run, I really got to think about it, you know? And 
Yeah. And obviously, like, people, I'm not saying that uh, someone who enjoys old-time music and doesn't know their history is, like, a racist or something like that. But it's it's just, like, you could learn more, you know, like... Uh, I don't know, I really like eggs, but if you put a little salt in it, like, it tastes better, you know? (laughs) We'll have more with producer Odelia Rubin and singer-songwriter Hubby Jenkins after the break. We know there's a lot going on in the news. China is still struggling to contain the coronavirus. It has been a turbulent year in politics around the world. Smoke darkens the skies above Aleppo's countryside. This fire is burning out of control, and it's just 25 miles from Canberra, Australia's But here's the thing. There are also a lot of compassionate people doing amazing things for others every day. How do you pay someone back who saved your life? I am so incredibly grateful that I need to pay it back to her, but also pay it forward to others. Hear those stories on Kind World, a podcast about how acts of kindness can transform lives. That's Kind World. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Welcome back to this week's bonus episode of Family Ghosts. Let's return to producer Odelia Rubin's conversation with Hubby Jenkins. I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, Bed-Stuy, then Clinton Hill. My mom, Cassandra, had me with my dad. My dad split, and then she met my my other mom, Paula, and they both raised me. And they split when I was a kid. Yeah, and so my mom, Cassandra, is the one whose family's from North Carolina, Mm. who all came up in, like, the 50s and 60s. She grew up in Queens in the Rockaways. And my other mom's from Puerto Rico. So my, yeah, my life was kind of split between... That those two things like Southern New York black stuff and uh, <laughs> and like Puerto Rican island goodness and Yankee ball games and all that kind of stuff. How did it affect the music that you chose? I think with Cassandra, she has a really um, eclectic taste in music. So like I would hear everything in the house. From she was really into the Pretenders, but she was also really into Shirley Caesar. She was into. Um, she also taught me how to two-step, which I think was very important. Um, she was like, everyone should know how to two-step. I have a very good memory of my mom like showing me in the kitchen while she was cooking how to keep a beat. And then with Paula, it was like lots of like salsa music and conga drums in the house all the time. And I think that affected me in a different way that I didn't see until later on, of just having this appreciation for like Afro influences and understanding history and, and that kind of stuff. Both my parents were fairly political, like, like active and, like, protesting and stuff like that. Paula has worked in harm reduction my whole life. So when I was a kid, it was, like, she had a lot of street outreach during, like, the AIDS epidemic in the 90s and stuff. And so that was, like, a big influence just seeing her deal with that stuff and working with people who needed it. I've been thinking about... Um, like Black Panther, the movie, and stuff like that. <laughs> and I hear it, yeah. when I went to go see the movie, I think it was like the second time I went to go see, no, the first time I went to go see it. And then like everyone had the shikis on and all this stuff. And I'm like, did they buy this for the movie? Are they selling them somewhere in the lobby? Like what's, what's happening? And what does it mean? Like what the hell does it mean? And you know, like we've been cut off from our history. Like part of slavery was like eliminating our history. 
I just got like this DNA kit thing that I'm kind of excited to do. Like, I'm going to get back in a package like where I've come from. You know, I can only go so far, right, before I, I, there's nothing. And so you have a whole society, a whole culture, a whole group of people who have this destruction of our past. And then the second part of our past is just altered, <laughs> like altered to be favorable to someone else and like altered to continue oppression and altered to change perspectives of us and et cetera. So it becomes a very important thing to me and very powerful to wear a dashiki and represent that and to play banjo and tell people this is where it comes from and this is what it's about and why things have been changed and why it's important to unchange it, you know? Like that festival, Shikori Hills, like the first time I played at that festival, it was like, I didn't know that festivals existed. I didn't know that fiddle competitions existed. Like City Boy, New York City, every day. Pizza, bagels, the whole thing. And uh, went down there, and my mom was like so worried. She's like, oh, don't go to the south. Like, it's, it's terrible down there. Like, be careful, yada, yada, yada. I was like, I'll be fine. And I played this festival. People liked it. And I met some dudes. I think they're Muslim from Nashville. A bunch of white guys playing country music by a fire, drinking, and I'm hanging out with them all night. And then all of a sudden, just nigger jokes everywhere, looking right at me, like, hubby, you're going to like this one, like, derp 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 And I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, what world, <laughs> what world have I walked into? Um, and I confronted that situation by standing up and yelling the worst nigger joke that I know, just, like, saying it, like, super loudly. Like, you want, you want jokes like that? Here we go. And everyone saw me, and they looked at me like, oh, that's right. And then they moved to, like, sexist jokes and, I, I don't know, something else, you know. But, like, yeah, that was my introduction into the world of, of, in a lot of ways. And, and it's gotten much better, for sure. But, like, old-time music and blues music also, or old-time world is also very closed off. I'm trying to say it nicely without being too rude, but, like, yeah. Um, so it's also being in that world, like, you know, like it's, it's not rebellious, but it's bold. It's like a bold thing to play the banjo. And like, that's where like the empowerment comes from too. Not just to be on stage and have the historical thing, but to walk into Shikori Hills or Merle Fest. I played Merle Fest this year and two black people there, me and Rhiannon, that was it. Um, just to walk in there and be like, hell yeah, black people. <laughs> you know? Um, and it's very important to me um, to do that. I guess, like, when I was talking about my Puerto Rican mom earlier, it's, like, just seeing her do that kind of work. Like, just do activism work. You know, like, making her work part of, like, a change was inspirational. And so try to make it whenever I play that I'm pushing forward. That was Hubby Jenkins in conversation with Odelia Rubin and also playing his banjo between segments. Find his music at hubbyjenkins.com. Wild Card Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday? Wild Card Wednesday. 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 Wild card Wednesday.
Wildcard Wednesday. Wildcard Wednesday. Wildcard Wednesday. Wildcard Wednesday. Wildcard Wednesday. So. Wildcard Wednesday. Okay, so it's early 2017, and I've just made contact with my grandfather's secret daughter, Maya. It's a huge turning point in the reporting of the pilot episode of Family Ghosts. I decide to call up my friend Ben Mastin, who I used to do sketch comedy with in college. Ben, as you might imagine, is a real cut-up. Okay, so relative to you, she is a... I guess like a a half-aunt? Is that a thing? I, I... I think she's a haunt. A ha- oh, a half aunt. A haunt. Yeah, well, or yeah, but really, it works on a couple levels. I think. I hope you're going to use that. I love Ben, and it's also very on brand for him to use this cataclysmic turning point in my understanding of my heritage to make a pun. Anyway, a few months later, Ben's parents are moving out of their apartment and don't want to have to transport their old vinyl collection, so they call me up and ask if I want it. Are you kidding me? I've never wanted anything more than I want that. I'm at their apartment within the hour, sorting through a goddamn treasure trove. Paul Simon, Joan Baez, Bonnie Kolak. I'd never even heard of Bonnie Kolak, and now I'm addicted. Have you ever heard her voice? Iowa, beautiful land, cared for by the farmer's hand, across your... The biggest jackpot in the crate of records is an original copy of the 1962 Dave Van Ronk album, Folk Singer. Your humble ghost host has been 100% obsessed with Dave Van Ronk since discovering that his memoir was the inspiration for Inside Lewin Davis. So this is naturally the first record on the spindle as soon as I get my crate of loot back to my apartment. I pour two fingers of Catoctin Creek Roundstone rye and settle in for an afternoon of folk balladry. The record sounds absolutely gorgeous. Raw, heartfelt takes of He Was a Friend of Mine, Stackerly, and Cocaine Blues, among others. Just Dave and his guitar. More captivating than two stadiums of Zeppelin stacks, just like Hubby says. I flip the record over. I'm getting all excited as Side B hums along, heading towards Dave's legendary rendition of Hang Me, Oh Hang Me. That's the version that inspired Oscar Isaac's performance in Lewin Davis. But first... What a joy. I get to hear a tune I'd never even heard of, Fixin' to Die. I kick up my feet, clink the ice in my roundstone, and then this happens. So many thoughts at once. First thought, curses, a disruption of my otherwise perfect evening of music and reflection. Second thought, But this is totally why records matter, man. The inherent imperfections of music and life can't be digitally ironed out, and vinyl reminds us of this. Third thought, that is a nicely timed skip. The notes are so pleasing, the repetition, rhythmic. I walk over to my record player and recorded a few repetitions of the skip on my phone. Then I lifted the needle, lowered it, let the record continue. Transfixed by Van Ronk's original version of Hang Me, I drifted into folk oblivion, forgetting about the record skip for months, until March of this year, it's time to launch this very bonus episode series, and I'm wanting as many of our creative choices as possible to reflect the diverse array of influences that infuse our storytelling. I remember the record skip. I remember that Evan Viola, 
one of our resident Panoply audio engineers turned Mark Pagan's narrated repetition of De Power of the Mind into outro music with serious slap. The Power of the Mind. The Power of the Mind. The Power of the Mind. I'm a bit behind schedule as usual, so I send Evan a frantic email with the record skip attached, subject line, song in tarot bang, and not much more information. Within the hour, Evan has sent back 45 seconds of groove that are somehow exactly what I was imagining. I book a studio for an hour and ask everyone in the office to come by and say the phrase Wildcard Wednesday. I give them as many prompts as I can think of. Say it like you've never heard of it. Wildcard Wednesday? Say it like it's your favorite day. Wildcard Wednesday. Say it like you're singing about it in church. Wildcard Wednesday. And so on. Within a few hours, a classic track was born. Now the point of all this is to say that nothing you hear in this feed would be possible without the freedom to follow occasionally harebrained creative impulses, which Panoply has, for reasons unknown to me, continued to provide, and being surrounded by wildly talented and better organized people. And of course, all of you members of the Ghost family. If nothing else, I hope these bonus episodes have helped illustrate how much goes into all of this. Thank you so much for listening. I couldn't be more grateful. Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman, with Odelia Rubin, Jennifer Lai, Lindsay Cradwell, and Jacob Smith. Our story editor is Michaela Bly, our managing producer is Mia Lobel, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Special thanks this week to Hubby Jenkins. Find his music at hubbyjenkins.com. Our Wildcard Wednesday theme is by Evan Viola and Dave Van Ronk, featuring the vocal stylings of Shamaya Williams, Jacob Smith, Nicole Bunces, Lori Tobiasen, Lindsay Cradwell, Shelby Jordan, and Emily Mulholland. If you're anywhere near Brooklyn, please join us at the live show at the Bell House tomorrow. Tickets are available at our website, familyghosts.panoply.fm. We will be back with one more bonus episode in two weeks, and we'll be changing up the format in a big way. Stay tuned. Talk to you then, Ghost Family. Ghost family, thank you so much for listening to our show and being a part of what we do. Today, I need to ask for your help. This is something that will only take five minutes of your time. Please go to spokemedia.io slash survey and tell us a little bit about yourself. It really helps us find advertisers, which helps us keep this show in your podcast feed. That's spokemedia.io slash survey. And thank you.